you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Job. Job is just after Esther and before the Psalms. Job chapter 28, and we'll begin reading at verse 12 through 28. Verses 12 and 20 of this text sum up the message of the chapter with a point that no amount of effort, even as vigorous and demanding as mining, will, will, will yield God's wisdom. It can't be valued or found in the world, verses 13 and 14. It can't be bought for any price, verses 15 through 19. The living can't find it, verse 21, and neither can the dead, verse 22 and Job 26, 6. Verse 23 contains perhaps the most important thoughts in the chapter for the debates. Job and his friends have probed God's wisdom for three times and basically have arrived nowhere near the truth. Finally, Job made the point clearly that divine wisdom necessary to explain his suffering was inaccessible to man. Only God knew all about it because he knows everything. Verse 24. True wisdom belongs to the one who is the almighty creator. Verses 25 and 26. A person can only know it if God declares it to him. Deuteronomy 29:29. In verse 28, Job had made the connection that the others would not. While the specific features of God's wisdom may not be revealed to us, the alpha and the omega of wisdom is to revere God and to avoid sin. Psalm 111:10 and Proverbs 1:7. Leaving the unanswered question to him, entrusting submission. All a person can do is trust and obey. Ecclesiastes 12:13. And that is enough wisdom and that is enough wisdom, which is the wisdom of Proverbs 1:7 through 2:9, which starts off by saying that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. One may never know the reasons for life's sufferings. Begin reading at Job chapter 28 at verse 12. This is God's word. But where, but where shall wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? Man does not know its worth and it is not found in the land of the living. The deep says it is not in me and the sea says it is not with me. It cannot be bought for gold, and silver cannot be weighed as its price. It cannot be valued in the gold of Ophir, in precious onyx or sapphire. Gold and glass cannot equal it, nor can it be exchanged for jewels of fine gold. No mention shall be made of coral or of crystal. The price of wisdom is above pearls. The topaz of Ethiopia cannot equal it nor can it be valued in pure gold. 
From where then does wisdom come? And where is the place of understanding? It is hidden from the eyes of all living and concealed from the birds of the air. Abaddon and death say, we have heard a rumor of it with our ears. God understands the way to it and he knows its place. For he looks to the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. When he gave to when he gave to the wind its weight and apportioned the waters by measure, when he made a decree for the rain and a way for the lightning of the thunder. Then he saw it and declared it. He established it and searched it out. And he said to man, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to turn away from evil is understanding. Amen. New Testament reading this morning comes from the Acts of the Apostles, Acts chapter 14. We'll begin reading at verse 8 through 24. Lyconia was a district in the Roman province of Galatia. Lystra was about 18 miles from Iconium and was the home of Lois, of Lois, Eunice, and Timothy. Acts 16, 1, 2 Timothy 1, 5. Luke mentions no synagogue in connection with Lystra, and since Paul be, began his ministry there by preaching to a crowd, it likely had a small Jewish population. Derby was about 40 miles southeast of Lystra. At Lystra, a city with no significant Jewish population, the mission began in a very different way. The healing of a cripple was observed by crowds, and Paul and Barnabas were mistaken for gods come down to earth. By the time the missionaries grasped what was happening, the local priests were about to offer up an animal sacrifice to them. Distraught, the missionaries rushed to explain that they were merely men. But they were bearers of good news from God who made all things and whose many gifts testified to his goodness. The people of the city listened. Because the crowd at Lystra were pagan and had no knowledge of the Old Testament, Paul adjusted his message to fit the audience. Instead of proclaiming the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, he appealed to the universal and national knowledge of the one who created world, the world, similar to his sermon at the Areopagus in Athens, Acts 17, 22-26. At Lystra, another contingent of Jews from Antioch and Iconium arrived. These men had determined to follow the missionaries and try to undo their preaching. And they succeeded in arousing the city against Paul. He was attacked with cobblestones, dragged out of the city, and left for dead. But the dead Apostle Paul, or so they thought he was dead, got up and returned to the city. The next day, the missionary team began to retrace its steps, visiting again those groups of believers which had been formed in every place that they had preached. Several patterns established on this first missionary journey into the Gentile lands continued to mark the evangelism of Paul and of other Christians throughout the days of the early church. 
the explosive, multiplying dynamic of the church of Jesus Christ, infused with his spirit and committed to live life's great adventure by focusing on its Lord, had begun the process by which the Roman world would be reached in a single generation. We'll begin reading in Acts 14, beginning at verse 8. This is God's word. Now at Lystra was a man sitting who could not use his feet. He was crippled from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul speaking. And Paul, looking intently at him and seeing that he had faith to be made well, said in a loud voice, Stand up upright on your feet. And he sprang up and began walking. And when the crowd saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in Laconian, The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul Hermes, because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was at the entrance to the city, brought oxen and garlands to the gates and wanted to offer sacrifice with the crowds. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of it, they tore their garments and rushed out into the crowd, crying out, Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men, we are also men, we also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness. Even with these words, they scarcely restrained the people from offering sacrifice to them. But the Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about, he arose up and entered a city, and on the next day he went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church, with prayer and fasting they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. Then they passed through Pisidia and came to Pamphylia. Amen. Turn with your Bibles to 2 Corinthians 12. In the process of getting there, I'd like to pass through two other passages just to just to lay a little groundwork for why this is so important. I would also like to point out that the in the previous hour, Mike's continuing his study of the Ten Commandments, the positives and the negatives of each of the commandments, and we're we're all the way to the to the third one. Ah. 
And what is what is became certainly obvious this morning is that if you think much about the third commandment, as with the other two, uh, you find yourself in Isaiah's spot, where you're you seem to be totally unclean, and it seemed like everybody around you is pretty unclean too, and that. Uh, how in the world did you get in the presence of any of a holy God? And how could you be safe there? Which, of course, drives us once again back to the grace of God and how thankful we should be for his grace because that's the only way in which we can be in his presence. But because he has acted upon us, and is it work in us? Uh, we're enabled to understand far more than we than we know. The eleven chapters of Romans that are just so dense, so thick of doctrine, uh, come to the conclusion with a with a therefore in Romans twelve one, and Paul says, "I I beseech you therefore, I appeal to you therefore." By the mercies of God that you offer your bodies, you present your bodies as living sacrifices. Whereas, don't die for me, die to yourself, but live for me. In a way that is, that is holy and that is acceptable to God. And then he points out in the last phrase of verse 1 here, that that is your spiritual worship, and probably a better translation would be that's that's the only rational response to this. You are cre- we are created as thinking, rational beings. And recognizing the debt we owe and the gift we've been given, the only right response, the rational, reasonable response, is to worship the giver. Now, that attitude will result in protecting us and, and really draw us from what we're, where we're naturally bent to go. The next verse is, so don't be conformed to this world. Don't be pressed into this world's manner of living, manner of thinking, manner of responding to events. You're, you, are, you are a different kind of creature now, a new creature in Christ. Instead, what what... What is happening to you, whether you fully realize it or not, is what happens when the caterpillar goes into the cocoon. Uh, which is to say, we don't know what happens in there. But, but what we call it when he comes out, and he's no longer a caterpillar, he's a moth or a, or a beautiful butterfly, is we say what happened was metamorphosis. Which we don't necessarily understand either. But the word metamorphosis is the word in Romans 2 translated, transformed. How does that transformation happen? Verse 2 tells us, by the renewing of your mind. Christianity is a thinking religion. We're, we're not dumb beasts. We're, we're not to be moved exclusively by our emotions and our feelings. And our responses to external stimuli. We are to think. And we're to think in order that by testing, it, we may discern what is the will of God. What's good? What's acceptable? 
What's purpose? What's perfect? Now, if you connect that with 2 Corinthians 3.18, in which Paul is writing to all the believers there in Colossae and, of course, in Corinthians, in Corinth, and writing through them to us, when he says, and we all, he means all believers. All believers, as we are beholding the glory of the Lord, are actually being transformed, metamorphosized, I guess, into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Well, how can that be going on? Well, it's certainly nothing we do. This comes from the Lord, who is a spirit. Now, that led me as I, and I put together the introduction after the message usually, but this time it kind of happened concurrently to ask the question, well, what does that look like? That being changed from glory to glory into the image of the Son. What does it look like when, when the Lord who's a spirit is doing this in our lives? Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you for the gift of today, the gift of one another in this assembly, the opportunity we have to have your unchanging, perfect word open before us, openly preached to us, to minds that are enlightened by the Spirit of God, understandings that are, that are enlightened as well, so that the word of God can find a fruitful, nourishing presence in our thinking and that we may experience this transforming grace. We ask, Lord, to use this hour for the extension of your kingdom over and through our lives for your glory alone. In Jesus Christ's name, amen. If you'll recall, a couple of weeks ago, we were in 2 Corinthians 11. Paul asked the Corinthians in the first verse for a certain amount of forbearance on their part. He said, bear with me in a little foolishness. Now, as I pointed out, he's asking for them to bear with him because he felt, verse 2, a divine jealousy for them. After all, he, 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 he led many of them to the Lord. Uh, they had been nourished by his preaching and teaching, he, so much so that he could, he could refer to the fact that he had betrothed them to one husband. Uh, and he really wanted to present them as a pure virgin to Christ. Because right from the beginning, he understood the church of the living God is the bride of Christ. But things had gotten serious there, and he's concerned. It's an urgent matter. He says, the, I'm I'm concerned that just as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, that they, particularly in their thought life, might be led astray from a sincere and a pure devotion to Christ. That was verse 3. See, there were individuals in that church who were offering up, verse 4 and 5, another gospel, another Jesus, another spirit. Paul rather mockingly refers to them in that fifth verse as they claim to be super apostles. So that he said, yeah, they're really super apostles. In point of fact, he tells us they're not apostles at all. They're false apostles, if anything. 
They're deceitful workmen. They're, they're disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And to be blunt about it, he says, in verse 19, and that's leaping much further down the chapter here, you Corinthians are putting up with those fools. Now, that's not us. That's them. Nobody's accusing us of putting up with those fools, but we need to be wary. Such fools are afoot in modern evangelicalism as well. Uh, instead of putting up with those fools, they should have been doing what the Bereans did. Listen very, very carefully to what's being preached and taught to them. Break out their scriptures or follow along with their scriptures and make sure that what they are hearing is in accordance with God's word. For that, the Bereans were called noble. But of course, they had false apostles in here now. They're all puffed up, boasting about their learning. They're, they're very eloquent of speech. And the people there were falling for it. Paul says, listen, they're living off you. They're using you. They're not giving themselves for you. They're living off you. Paul says, if you think about the ministry that I've had in verse 30, it's just the opposite. If I have to boast, I'm going to boast about the things that I'm, I'm absolutely weak at. And he would be the first to say, I don't look too good. Be the first to say that, you know, I don't speak eloquently like those guys. I don't have that long lineage. Now, there was a time in which he was at the top of his game in their society. But that's, that's long past now. He said, no, if I'm going to boast, I'm going to boast in the things that show my weakness. Because I've come to the conclusion it's, it's my inherent inability to do anything that truly pleases the Lord that enables God to get all the glory when I happen to do something that pleases the Lord. He's the one that's blessed forever. And as I preach and teach to you, he would say, as I write to you, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus, who is blessed forever, knows I'm not lying. I think I close that message by pointing out that the last illustration of how he, how he got to this place was of himself, Saul of Tarsus, a Hebrew of the Hebrews, a Pharisee of the Pharisees, raised at the feet of Gamaliel, the teacher of Israel, trusted by the Sanhedrin to, to carry letters of warrant as far away as Damascus that would authorize him to arrest and return in chains anyone professing to be a Christian, anyone professing to believe the way. And yet, that great man is suspended between heaven and earth in a basket, being lowered out of the window in the wall and probably probably spinning as it goes down, because that's the way it happens, <laughs> for fear of the Jews, and then escaping off into the darkness. He's, he's really making progress, isn't he? Yeah, that, that's the way it started. That's the way his new life started. Now let's move into our passage here. Paul says, I really must go on boasting. And he immediately says, does there really anything to be gained by it? Think about that. Boasting benefits no one. 
If you've got something to boast about, other people will work it out. You don't need to be doing it. That'd be one way to look at it. But he's going a little bit further. He said, boasting benefits no one. Everything comes from God. He's already said in chapter 10, verse 11, let the one who boasts simply boast in the Lord. Because it's God's power that interlocks or connects with our inability that enables us to do anything of lasting significance. It, it's when, when his unlimited power somehow connects to our unlimited weakness that anything of eternal significance gets accomplished. So if I must go on boasting, I want to go on to, he says, visions and revelations of the Lord. Now, this, this, is, this, is, this is really fascinating stuff here. Because there were visions. There were revelations that we don't know a whole lot about. Uh, for instance, for instance, we know Peter was staying in the household of Simon the Tanner. And he, he'd already done some miracles there, raising up Dorcas from the dead and stuff. And he's, he's hanging around there for whatever reason. And the emissary come, is coming his way from Cornelius the centurion. He's up on the rooftop waiting on dinner. And all of a sudden, he has a vision of a sheet being lowered. And the sheet, this is the way he explains it. It's full of animals. And he hears the voice. And the voice says, kill and eat. And he looks in there and he sees things that maybe he would eat and things he wouldn't eat. And he said, there's the things that I would never eat. And the Lord says, you know, you're not allowed to say what's clean and unclean. I'm telling you, this is now clean. Well, that happens three times before he gets the message. He's not a slow learner. This is an amazing message. And then he hears the knock at the door. And that leads to the conversion ultimately of Cornelius and and a significant household and a significant conference among the Jews afterwards. When Paul saw that blinding light, that, that blinding light on the road to Damascus, he heard a voice, and that voice self-identified itself as Jesus, whom he'd been persecuting. When Paul finally arrived in Corinth in Acts 18, He's afraid. Why would he be afraid? Because he's been beat up almost everywhere he goes. And he just figures it's going to happen again sooner or later here. And the Lord appeared to Paul in a vision at night and spoke to him and said, do not be afraid. Go on speaking. Do not be silent. I am with you. Nobody's going to attack you here. No one's going to harm you here. For I have many in this city who are my people, none of which were evident. Now, after 18 months in that city, apparently there are quite a few evidently his. And that's the group that Paul's writing to a number of years later. In fact, generally when we're doing the Lord's table here, I open my text to 1 Corinthians 11. And I read you that Paul wrote those same Corinthians that he had received from the Lord. In other words, it's structured. He'd, almost, he'd been given this by hand and says, man to man, from the Lord and delivered to you how the Lord's table was to be observed. Well, we don't have any record of that happening. We don't know when that happened. We don't know such an encounter isn't recorded anywhere. 
It said, Paul says it happened. It did happen, in other words. Well, now it's going to speak about something else that we don't know when happened. He says, I know a man who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Now, we'll get to who he's talking about. He's obviously talking about himself, but I can demonstrate that from the scriptures here in a moment. But why would he even be talking this way? Well, he says, I could boast, but what good does boasting do? I don't want you to think much of me. I want you to think of the Lord. But I know a man who 14 years ago was caught up into the third heaven. Now, in in the ancient world, they thought of the sky they looked at all day as the heavens. The heavens declare the glory of God. It fits very nicely. Now, when it became night and you couldn't see that blue sky, they saw a lot of other stuff up there. And they spent a lot of time studying it. And they're much more advanced in that than we may realize. But I said, that's the second heaven. But Paul says, I know a man who 14 years ago was called up to the third heaven. Now, where's the third heaven? I think simply put, the way they would have conceived it, it's beyond the second heaven, but more importantly, it's the abode of God. That's where God is. Now, Paul says about this man, I don't know whether this happened in the body or out of the body. That's the way he says it. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. But what I do know is that God knows. Now, there's a pretty good motto for life in a lot of areas. To go on to verse 3. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. So now we've got a, a synonym for the third heaven. And it's called paradise. Again, I don't know whether it's in the body or out of the body. But God does know. So what is this paradise that this individual was called up to? Well, that's one of those relatively rare words. It's only used three times in our Bibles, this being one of them. One of the other times, and probably a very significant time, is when Jesus Christ is hanging upon that cross. And he's been listening for a couple of hours to the thief on either side, berate him and mock him and scoff and challenge him if he's such a hot shot. Why didn't he just take a ball off the cross? And eventually one says to the other, Among the thieves. You know, you get right down to it. We deserve what's happening to us. And this man's totally innocent. He turns to Jesus and says, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. This man's heard the Lord's message. Other times, perhaps, without believing it. Now, he believes it. And Jesus turns to him in Luke 23, 43. says, Truly I say to you, Today... You will be with me in paradise. That's where the the man was lifted up in the third heaven to. Revelation 2.7 in one of those epistles to the churches points out that if any man has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life. And where is this tree of life? Well, we know where it was. Revelation 2.7 says it's in the paradise of God. Well, we know that in chapter 22 of Revelation, three times 
The tree of life is in the new heavens and the new earth. So paradise is with God. It is the place where the tree of life is. And it's the place where this man Paul's referring to was taken up to. Incidentally, the word is not rapture. He was taken up to this place. Now, in the life of Paul, when did that happen? The most common understanding is it happened in the passage that Brother Walt read to us just before this message. Uh, the passage where he was stoned to death. Uh, I think I've mentioned it a couple of times. I presume people that stone people to death regularly have a pretty good idea when the job is done. And so if, if, they, if they had been stoning, stoning Paul, uh, they didn't finish till they were sure it was done, and they certainly thought he was dead, but asked, after they left, he stood up, went back into the city and comforted the brethren, and then went on. Uh, so that, I mean, that kind of makes sense. That's the time, if you're, if you're going to have one of those out-of-body experiences, that would seem to be it. But then as so often happens, I look other places and I start tracing out chronologies and trying to figure out the years of all the events in Paul's life. And it doesn't quite fit. In fact, the closest fit to 14 years before Paul writes this particular epistle is somewhere somewhere after Barnabas has gone and found Saul of Tarsus and brought him back to Antioch there in Acts 11. Something happened in there in all likelihood. But whatever it was, and wouldn't we love to know what it was? Whenever it was and wherever it was, the man that was caught up there, verse 4, tells us he heard things. He heard things that he can't talk about. Now, a couple of years ago, there was a whole series of books Christian publishers were putting out and Christians were reading and getting all kinds of crazy about, which were labeled Heaven Tourism. You know, five minutes in heaven, 15 minutes in heaven, a little boy goes up and comes back talking about Jesus looking like Santa Claus and things like that. Uh, that, that was very popular. Fortunately, it's not right now, but it'll come around again because these things always do. This is not heaven tourism. Paul says this man that was caught up into paradise heard things that are unwordable words is the literal translation. (laughs) What in the world would be an unwordable word? Well, think about how Isaiah and Daniel and Ezekiel, and for that matter, John the Apostle, describe what they see when they see the cherubim and and God and the throne of God, and you kind of get the idea is they're nowhere close to entirely, they're not wrong, but they can't describe what they're seeing. There aren't words to convey this. This man that was called up the third heaven heard words that are unwordable. These, these are words that human mouths cannot replicate. There, there, there's no way to convey those things. But even more importantly, even if there were such a way, verse, verse 
4 continues to say, even if it could be said, they're not allowed to be said. It's unlawful. These are words that cannot be told, which a man cannot utter. Then you ever wonder why Lazarus, after he spends four days in the grave, and you know, and people are coming to visit him and want to hear all the isn't it amazing? We don't have any record he ever told anybody anything that he saw and experienced. These are things that just can't be said. Well, this is not exactly a you had to be there moment. Paul was given an actual foretaste, a, a premature experience of the unspeakable wonder, of the resplendence, of the glory, of the calm, of the peace, of the, of the beauty of God himself. And, and there's, there's no way to convey that. And he wouldn't be allowed to in any case. Well, if you've seen God, how can he be live? How can he live? No man's seen God any time. You can't see God and, and live. How did he live? The same way we're going to, because he was in Christ. See, in Christ, the Lord sees Christ. Now, you have to read that verse 5 in connection with verse 7 to really understand this is Paul talking about himself. But he says in verse 5, on behalf of this man, I will boast. Okay, I said it doesn't do any good, but on behalf of that, that man, I'm going to boast, but I'm not going to boast about anything I did because I can take no credit for it whatsoever. I'm just going to boast about how weak the experience was. How, how my part in it was absolutely the personification of weakness. Now, verse 6, if, if I wanted to boast about it, I wouldn't be a fool to boast about it because it, it actually happened. I, I really would be speaking the truth. But I want to refrain from that. I don't want anybody to think much of me just because I've had this experience. Now think about that in the light of contemporary evangelicalism. I want everybody to know about this phenomenal spiritual experience I've had and buy my books and the audio tapes and whatever. I guess I'm, that dates me. <laughs> We're not there. Yeah, I could. But I'm going to refrain. I don't want anybody to think more of me than he sees, than he sees and hears exactly what I say, because that's, that's what's important. And so, he, whoever this man is, he's experienced a phenomenal height, greater than can be expressed. And then in verse 7, he says, to keep me from becoming conceited. So now we know the man from verse 7 is the man of verse 5. To keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations. I was given a thorn. Now the word for thorn here could be stake too. But let's stick with thorn. It works very, very well because we've all experienced thorns. They may seem small. It's like splinters uh, or off a blackberry bush, perhaps. But it's painful. And if you don't get it out, it's always there. And it seems like that's the only part of your body that ever touches anything. It's just, it's just a constant thing. It says, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, 
because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations that he had seen, a thorn, a thorn was given me as a graced gift from God. Now think about that. This Now, I've, I've heard this explained all kinds of ways. Some people say, you know, that could be somebody. Somebody that's just a thorn in your side all the time. Uh, I doubt it's that, that we all know the sort of person we're talking about, and everybody's got their own set. All right. But it was a grace gift, and it was chosen for Paul by God at the time and place that he received the great revelation. It was given me in my flesh. That's why it's not another person necessarily. It affected him physically. He calls it very specifically a messenger of Satan. In other words, he doesn't doubt at all there is satanic power behind the gift that God gave him. Only think, think of the power structure involved in that. And, in, and he, he recognizes it was given him, this messenger of Satan, to harass him. Now, if, you're, if your chain of authority is all messed up at this point, let me offer you a parallel here from Luke 22. Verses 31 and 32. The Lord looks at Peter and says, Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded to have you. Now, who would Satan demand from? God. He wants you that he may sift you like wheat. This is before the three denials. And Jesus Christ tells Peter, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brethren. That's a great example, like Job is, of the Lord on a leash letting Satan have a certain amount of authority over the lives of God's saints. Again, he says this was to keep me from being Conceited. This is for my own good. Today's Super Bowl Sunday. If, if, there is a, if there is a day in the year in which the glorification of individuals is elevated higher than Super Bowl Sunday, I have no idea what it is. There's probably... It's the Lord's, the world's largest stage for self-gratification. It doesn't matter whether you're on the field being a superhero or one of these celebrities up in the box they're going to be watching. The last thing I saw last night online, much to the relief of America, I'm sure, is that what's-her-name's jet landed in California safely, and she'll be there. Right. I'm not making a critique of her. Just, this is our culture. This is where we are. But it's a real thorn and it really hurts and it's enduring. It just goes on and on and on. And Paul says three times, I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me, that I would be relieved of this, that it would go away so I could be more effective in this ministry. Now, likely when he says three times, it really doesn't mean I was going to do it twice 
And when that didn't work, I was going to probably do it at least four or five more times. That probably means he asked continuously and passionately again and again until the Lord's answer came back. And the Lord could have removed it. Paul would have certainly desired that. That's why he was asking. The Lord could have just left it there and he'd be crippled and go on and just do whatever it is, whatever's happening to him, and but stunted. Instead, the Lord did something else. And this is what he does for his people. He gave him a special measure of grace to endure it and to live at peace with it. Now, in everyone's life, such things are ongoing. There are things that if you could change, if you could go back and do over, if you could unsay, if there's a decision you could have made differently and a more time, a, a, a better way to have said that. But that's there now. The Lord gives grace to endure it. What happened is the Lord said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. The saving grace of God. The demonstration of my power is made perfect in your weakness. I am sufficient for you, is what he's saying. So another way of saying my grace is sufficient. My presence, my sustaining power, my calming, supporting, comforting, assuring, emboldening, satisfying power. My grace is with you, and it is sufficient. There's a sense in which the weakness that we come to recognize more and more in our lives is the canvas on which God's power is put on display, his sovereignty over our lives. So Paul says, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. So he got the message, and he's, and he's relaying this message to the Corinthians. He says, for the sake of Christ, then, and this is the last verse, verse 10. For the sake of Christ, then, your text says, I am content with, be almost more accurate to say, I am well pleased with the weaknesses, all the incapacities. So many come just with our fallen nature and living in a fallen world. And over time, the, the corruption of this world just drags us down in so many ways. I'm well pleased with the insults. The fact that he, he got mistreated by others, sometimes words, other times it was pretty serious actions. I'm well pleased with the hardships, the fact that circumstances get really, really tough. We, we are pressed sometime by circumstances and other people in this room this way. That things are going on and you think this is beyond my capacity to endure. In fact, I would have never chose to go this way. I, I've, I've prayed not to have to go down this road and yet here I am. There are limits that we say we'd just be uncomfortable to go beyond and the Lord says, but I've chosen for you to go beyond them. He said, I'm well pleased with persecutions. The fact that 
You know, if they hated my master, why wouldn't people hate me? I'm his disciple. I represent him. And sometimes I just have to be pleased with calamities. There, some things happen to us sometimes that are just overwhelmingly terrible. Devastating. Sudden losses from which we think we'll never, never recover. Paul says, I've, I've reached this point because I've, I've come to realize that at my absolute weakest, that's when God's strength is made most evident. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, what a gift today is. What a gift the presence of your spirit, the assurance of your word, the testimony of the Apostle Paul, the testimony of life in Christ among fellow believers is to us. Lord, use this message to prepare us for the coming days and for the opportunities we have to be noticeably different before a watching world because our faith is in the one that's sovereign over all. In Jesus Christ's name, amen.